Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm Wyndham Lewis, and I'm joined by my two brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis. Today, we're talking about the radio, our version of the radio, how we grew up with it, and what it means to us today. You can learn more about the podcast at brotherpod.com, rate and review us on iTunes, or follow us on Facebook and Twitter for more info. Now let's talk about the radio. Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm Wyndham Lewis, and tonight I'm here with my two brothers. I'm uh, Jeremy Sartori, brother from another father. And I am Christian Lewis, brother from the same father, but a different mother. Uh, tonight we're talking about the radio and uh, what our relationship growing up was to the radio, what it means today, and, you know, really how it affected us and in in how we uh, took to music. Um, you know, my I'm going to lead off because uh, my... Uh, relationship with radio dates back, I think, to the invention of radio, uh, comparatively. But, you know, I really grew up on AM and then FM and then college radio. And AM radio is sort of a, a funny notion to people who didn't grow up on it. It, it really was uh, this terrible uh, fidelity, but also uh, kind of a, you know, people think of AM radio, and I've said this before, and they think of, you know, the sort of naff you know, bread, Paul Davis kind of stuff. Um, but in all actuality, uh, if you go back and listen to Top 40 uh, from the time, you got a lot of really strange stuff put together on the same table. It's nothing that would happen now because, you know, it's become so siloed. But you did used to get, you know, Paul Davis's I Go Crazy followed by Led Zeppelin followed by, you know, Aerosmith followed by Carol King. It was a really strange mishmash. Um, and, you know, I grew up on uh, AM radio in Central Virginia. Um, so we had a dose of country thrown in there as well. A lot of, you know, Jesse Coulter and, and uh, the like. But, you know, it, it was a, uh, you know, I grew up, my sort of anecdotal piece is that, you know, when I, growing up, I used to uh, really nerd out, even as a young child. I would go, I would follow Casey Kasem's Top 40 every week. I would chart uh, people's progress up and down the charts, and then I would actually go to uh, the drugstore, which sounds like I'm lived and it's a wonderful life. But I uh, I went to the drugstore to buy 45s, and then I was able to ask the people who worked at the drugstore if I could take the print copy of Billboard's Hot 100, and so I would actually draw on that, and I would chart like you know like you would chart a March Madness back before. Uh, it was all computerized. It was, a, it was uh, a very strange habit for a young child. And, you know, I, I would, you know, memorize chart positions. I would, you know, be rooting for certain songs. Actually, uh, Sarah and I, would, my, our sister, would be rooting for certain songs to, to climb up the charts or, or root against certain songs. It was, uh, you know, and it was funny because, you know, the amount that we were traveling at that point, too, it was, it was a one constant that uh, you could sort of follow around the country. Top 40, you know, America's Top 40 with Casey Kasem was a syndicated national show that you could listen to wherever you were. So whether we were back east in Virginia or out west in, you know, the Bay Area or L.A., uh, you could always listen to it, and it was, you know, sort of always the same. 
So, so w- Wyndham, was this like a fundamental difference in uh, in FM and AM radio, or was it just the fact that that particular show was broadcast nationally? Because I don't, I mean, I, I guess it was like maybe Howard Stern before he went to satellite radio. I like, pardon my ignorance on this. I literally AM oh. radio was completely news talk stuff by the time yeah, I came it around. Was. So I was like, and it and it is. Um, actually, I think the fundamental difference was, uh, you know, the AM. Um, you know, played played music. It it ultimately it, it there's a difference in the uh, the strength of signal, and also okay. um, the sort of fidelity of the sound that comes through. And you know, my relation, you know, my recollection of AM and FM, and and you know, I, I should know more about this than I do, but FM, you know, when by the time FM became popular, um, it was sort of what you would think of as classic rock radio. Now, um, it was more. Uh, independent DJ based and AM, um, you know, was sort of a, a top 40 format. Um, FM was sort of, uh, it was. So it, like it individual had, personalities came to sort person- of help drive yeah. the narrative. Yeah. Okay. And it's funny cause a lot of the personalities that got scooped up. I mean, I think, you know, in Boston where I didn't live yet, um, you know, you had some people that, you know, when Peter Wolf was a was an FM DJ here. J.J. Jackson, who was an original VJ on MTV, was an FM DJ here. Um, but, you know, it, it, there was, I guess uh, what it was really is that, you know, sort of FM revolutionized radio, but FM had a very, you know, had, through the 70s was, was essentially classic rock radio, but pretty soon into the 80s, pretty shortly into the 80s, FM became very, uh, siloed and, and corporate and, and basically you took the DJ out of the equation and it was a format. It was, you'd hear the same 20 songs depending on what style of station you were listening to. Uh, I think right. a lot of the larger cities like places like Boston and I know Cleveland had a big one, uh, the Camel and uh, you know uh, places like Los Angeles and San Francisco had uh, independent um, you know, still had sort of a personality-driven uh, DJ culture, uh, but it really, by the time, you know, in, in some of the smaller areas that we lived in, FM uh, became pretty uh, formatted pretty quickly and really took a lot of the personality out of it. And AM really deteriorated into exactly what, you know, you're talking about. It became sort of news radio, talk radio, and all that seemed to, you know, that proliferation of that kind of formatting happened early 80s when I believe it was the consolidation of the ownership um, that really changed um, the, uh, the structure of, of how radio was, was done. But um, it's funny because, I mean, and I'll talk more about this later, but, a, I, you know, I sort of graduated AM to FM. FM was a fairly short stint for me um, in the true sense of FM radio because when we moved up north to uh, New York, uh, I started listening to the Ithaca College radio station. So uh, it was called WICB-FM. And the, the reason, I mean, I was drawn to it for a number of reasons. One is they played a lot of the English stuff that uh, I was, you know, getting to hear when I was over in England. But the other was that uh, I, it was, I don't think it was popular enough with its students to uh, block me from requesting songs and hearing them immediately. So I actually kind of felt like I was DJing my own show, even though I was, you know, calling in. I'd call up and I'd be like, yeah, can you play Depeche Mode? And they would play it uh, two songs later. I'd call up or ask for the Smiths or Big Country or something. And, you know, stuff that wasn't then uh, getting played on, 
on uh, regular rotation in FM radio. I was going to say, I have a vivid memory of uh, you, you know, calling me into your room, and, and I was very young at this point, and, you know, being like, hey, I just requested this song, sit down and listen to it, you know, kind of forced <laughs> to listen to it, and it was uh, Big Country yeah. in a Big Country, and, and luckily I thought it was just, I love that song, you know, and I still love that song today, and at the same time, I think you requested a double, uh, <clears throat> sort of a, a double play of The Alarm, Come on down and meet your maker, or, or make a stand, stand. Whatever that song, the stand. Yeah, yeah. God, I and, love that uh, song. And uh, big country, and, and so uh, yeah, I remember it, those vividly. It was a, uh, it was a simpler time, but that you know, it's funny because those are the kinds of bands then that you know, and, and this is a good segue into uh, Jar's story because, you know, after uh, you know that that segregation started to happen of of what was getting played on regular radio, even though you know these songs sounded like hits to me that would get played on regular FM radio they weren't and so they were you know sort of segregated up to to college stations but it was the same time that MTV really kind of exploded um you know as I've said before we had MTV from the day it started um in upstate New York which was strange because it was kind of a backward place and then you know when we ultimately by the time we moved to suburban Boston in in uh 84 they still didn't have cable so we went from having you know, the sort of, you know, what amounts to what was cutting edge at the time to uh, to taking a, a, you know, sort of backward tack. And, but, uh, you know, Jared, I think, you know, he, you know, when we, he and I discussed this, you know, like I said, I, I was, I literally wired my room with coat hangers so I could pick up WICB FM from Ithaca. But, you know, Jared sort of grew up with TV being more of the radio for him than the radio. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, you know, and I can talk a little bit about my radio experience, and, and then we can certainly break into kind of the genre of, of music video and how big that was for me. And I was just going to say, you know, I didn't, I missed obviously the FM AM uh, transition, but, you know, I, I sort of thought about radio, like traditional radio first, and I thought about it in three three sections for me. And the first actually starts in, in upstate or wherever the hell it is, the, the, mill, the mill town we lived in in New York <laughs> briefly. And, um, you know, hearing bands through you, through college radio, but not really having any idea what that was. So a lot of it was was forced listening. It was driving around with our parents um, or, or being driven by our, our older sister and having a lot of sort of John Mellencamp. And, and, uh, it was a dark you know, time. Lover yeah, boy. it was a dark time. Lover boy. Journey and, uh, sticks. Exactly. And so then we made a move to Massachusetts where you know, people like Prince and Madonna, Whitney Houston were, were obviously hugely prevalent on the radio. But my introduction to sort of college radio, I'd, I'd gotten into what was called then college rock or, or alternative via U Wyndham, but I tapped into a station, BRU, which was the Brown University station mm. out of Providence. And then also Boston had a pretty good kind of left of the, you know, dial station as well, uh, FNX, FNX, which played great. a lot of, uh, Brit- yeah, back then, a lot of uh, interesting British stuff. So I'd, I'd hear bands like Pixies or, or Jane's Addiction, um, you know, so a lot of the British stuff for sure. And then I, you know, then you sort of get to the age where you take control of your own radio and in high school where I'm driving around with my friends, you know, let's just say possibly doing things we're not supposed to be doing in high school. And, you know, I was really limited to the classic rock genre. And that's when everything had become very siloed. So it was, there was, there was pop radio, there was the classic rock, you know, like I like to say, either the mill, the eagle, you know, the whatever, and every city has it. And I probably leaned closest to the classic rock just because it was, you know, people that everybody likes, Jimi Hendrix, Bob Dylan, you know, uh, 
you know, Creedence Clearwater, all of that, you know, kind of music. But then outside of New York, we had moved to New Jersey at this point. You also had Hot 97 and some of the hip-hop stations getting very popular. And before Hot 97 was just hip-hop hits, you know, you had really good DJ spins by Kid Capri, um, DJ Red Alert. And that was something that was really prevalent with us as well. And then I just kind of went into a black hole, you know, in my 20s, radio was, you know, literally and figuratively, uh, radio was dead to me, you know, I I didn't listen to it anymore. I'd gotten into my own, you know, music in college and and post-college and, and, you know, I didn't even know what was popular anymore, you know, I solely kind of siloed off and... I've talked about it on this pod a few times. I've, I've been reintroduced to radio in the last couple of years via my two daughters who I get to drive to school. And, you know, then normally I'd listen to sports radio or NPR or something like that, but they want to hear the hits. Yeah, so, you know, exactly. So I'm, I'm back on to kind of what I originated with where I was listening to Whitney Houston and Madonna, you know, having my mother drive me to school. You know, now I'm driving my kids to school and I'm listening to Adele, Bieber, Beyonce, um, and you know, it's actually kind of fun because it taps me into something that I, I hadn't heard. And it also kind of shows that radio is still really relevant. It may not be relevant in our homes or, or you know, kind of as a, a medium to find music, but the car is still, you know, I think the primary spot yeah, where you listen to radio. it's still relevant to children who are held hostage in their cars by their <laughs> parents, which is inter- incidentally the perfect segue for me to uh, <laughs> briefly describe my, uh, my childhood experience with radio before it became completely obsolete. Um, it's largely spent with a blindfold on and a gun to your head. To <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, playing Russian roulette with myself. Yeah, no. Uh, but I mean, I think so. the the two uh, the two diff- the two journeys for me to school were very different. Um, you know, uh, our, our dad went to um, live like an hour away uh, from from DC. So basically, the mornings every other Monday and um, the every other Friday afternoons when we were driving out to this place in Southern Maryland where he lived. Um, I was completely subject, uh, subject to his, um, his sort of radio whim and he was absolutely not going to share control. He was not, he expressed basically no interest, um, in my independent music taste until I was in college. Um, and, uh, and then to his credit, he sort of came around, but, um, you know, I always like to think of these as like the, uh, the early era, like Brit rock education hours where, um, you know, we spent a ton of time listening to like basically, well, a lot of it was also sort of oldies, you know, Motown because it was all sort of the same oldies station. Um, but you know, he was really knowledgeable about this stuff. It was the stuff that he grew up with. So whether mm-hmm. it was, you know, Bill Haley and the Comets or, um, uh, or, um, or yeah, exactly. Or, or Motown or, you know, up, up through, I would say sort of the Beatles and, and, um, and kinks, um, you know, he could really hold his own. Um, and, uh, on the flip side of that was, was, you know, my experience sort of in my mom's car where I really got to explore, I think, um, you know, a, a lot of my own tastes, um, much as it seems that Jeremy is willing to let his children explore their tastes, um, you know, and so I, I sort of got to figure out what radio stations I actually liked, um, which, you know, at the time for me in, in suburban D.C. were uh, were really it was it was WHFS. I mean, that was everything. Um, and that really was the the alternative to D.C. 101 and then basically in classic rock and country stations and that kind of thing. Yeah, that was the K-Rock of D.C. or the FNX of D.C. or the yeah. L.I.R. slash D.R.E. of, of D.C. So um, Yeah, and one I would add, I mean, it really wasn't like we didn't have uh, we didn't have college rock stations, and I'm sure that there are, you know, inveterate uh, uh, American University DJs out there who are, who are um, tweeting us to death right now, but um, 
uh, or all four of them. But um, certainly the this broadcast signal wasn't strong enough to reach us in Alexandria. Um, yeah, no, I don't. So, I don't remember. D, you know, DC as much of a college town as it is. I don't remember yeah. ever thinking of it as being a college radio town. Whereas you know, Boston and uh, no, actually Jersey was more of a college radio hotbed than New York ever yeah. was. I mean, uh, I remember actually. Well, yeah, and I, I, you know, it's funny. I actually remember being kind of shocked when I finally when I moved to um, in two thousand what eleven or twelve to to New York from uh, from DC two thousand twelve. Like driving through Jersey and Philly and all those places, and actually getting all of the college radio stations in uh, in the U-Haul I was in. I was actually st- I didn't realize these things actually existed in like broadcast of cars. I thought that I mean like the Hopkins radio station where I went I mean it was all online so um, it was yeah. kind of it was kind of an odd experience it's pretty cool though well college yeah. radio too could be both a you know great introduction to something amazing but also a pitfall into <laughs> complete you know dark hole of like you know screaming jazz hour or you know yeah. uh, bongo drums or Grateful Dead you know live mixes you know so it was very hit or miss too or, or you know or the fact that they couldn't play the the popular song off the pavement record they had to play you know the most obscure kind of noisy, slow song that you, no one wanted to listen to. So you're no longer being held hostage by your parents, you're being held hostage by the weird kid in the AV club? <laughs> yeah, that's it. I actually had exactly. a, a, high school, uh, a high school radio show at Berkshire where I used to play, just on purpose, I would play like Perubu, then Don Ho, then uh, Jesus and Mary Jane, <laughs> you know, then Lawrence Well. So, Which uh, sounds like would, a great radio station, actually. It kind of was, all five watts. Anyway, fortunately, <laughs> fortunately, brother, brother, brother has eclipsed your listenership in the uh, first couple of weeks. <laughs> anyway, um, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and talk about what radio has become. to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Uh, tonight we're talking radio. And for me, you know, uh, radio has now become uh, satellite radio, XM radio. And particularly, you know, I, li- I listen to a lot of XMU uh, to listen to find new bands. But it, the, the sort of uh, evolution of, of radio 
uh, really hit it at different times for all of us. And, and for Jeremy, I think particularly, you know, radio became the television for you, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a baby of, of cable television and MTV. I was, you know, born in, in 1976, as we established on our Defend Your Year pod, and I basically was raised by the television. So I think our parents checked in every once in a while, but um, for the most part, the glow box was uh, mommy and daddy. Hopefully they don't hear this pod. Um, but also having older siblings. So I was kind of talking to Christian earlier, you know, I kind of break up my my music viewing, which which became, you know, like you listen to the radio when you were a kid when I would plug on MTV, which was relatively new. So early on, it was, I think you and, and our sister Sarah had it on, so I would say like circa 83, 84, and it was, I was just, a, you know, kind of, I was an awestruck, you know, and it was, it was pretty diverse back then. I, I was looking up some of the top videos that were on MTV and you had sort of gender bending videos like Sweet Dreams by the Arrhythmics, um, Little Red Corvette by Prince, Do You Really Want to Hurt Me was a huge hit and a huge video hit by uh, Culture Club, you know, so these are some of my introductions. And then you had a real kind of like, I don't know, I was being naughty or sexuality with like Jay Giles band, Centerfold. And I remember watching that video and our, <laughs> our, our, you know, very stern grandmother coming in. It was almost like as if I'd gotten caught masturbating. This, you know, this, watching is, this, this is the scrambled Cinemax of <laughs> exactly. 1983. No, it, actually, it, was, it was pretty funny. I, I, remember, I remember thinking that, you know, because we had MTV from the get-go and um, I remember thinking, okay, hearing Centerfold and being like, okay, if there's one song that's going to, you know, Cross the cross that you know precious line and allow we're getting we're getting side nudity. boob. <laughs> it's going to be centerfold. Nice. Uh, there was definitely some white bra action and some uh, Catholic schoolgirl skirts uh, oh, dancing man. around on that video that I it burned into my mind. But you know, so it was again. I didn't really have musical taste per se. I knew that I hated the John Mellencamp video, Jack and Diane, or whatever the hell that song was. And I love centerfold, <laughs> but I didn't necessarily have musical taste. And then you know, I kind of put it also in the section of pre-Nirvana for me. So, you know, I, I was into alternative college rock through you and, and then genuinely kind of developed my own taste. But MTV didn't necessarily deliver that taste to me, but yet I would sit there, you know, after middle school or junior high, so let's say like circa 90, and I would just watch MTV all day. And it's amazing to me to look back the patience I had to sit through a Queensryche video, <laughs> Silent Lucidity, which to this day is like, God, it's a fucking worst song ever and the video is just as bad just to get to Depeche Mode you know or, or uh, enjoy the silence or something and even more you know to, to my I'll say my sort of diligence on trying to find music and, and kind of a limited scope and Christian will obviously go into the the world of music opening up completely was you know we had a couple outlets being Yo MTV Raps which was huge for me and, and people my age group so MTV had started to uh, you know bring in uh, black artists and, and obviously started with Whitney and, and Michael Jackson I don't think they get get knocked enough actually for not doing it initially sort of the baby boomers I'm always surprised at how when when you look at I mean when you're reading about it or whatever it's like or i mean even listening now to like mtv executives talk about this stuff they were like yeah we, we just weren't so sure about bringing yeah. this michael jackson fellow it's over the, onto uh, our uh, onto our the, and i'm the, like no one's gonna call me? us on this one yeah, yeah exactly it's really embarrassing but it did but it even did. sorry go but ahead, the guys so, i mean the guy's albums were flying off the shelves right well the record company made him made them play that i mean basically the so record company the said off. yeah okay. like 
if you don't play these records, you know, we're not going to give you anybody's videos. And then that's yeah. really how Michael Jackson, mean, that's how Billie Jean got played. Okay. I mean, Billie Jean was a huge hit. What were you going to say, Wendell? No, I was just going to say that, you know, I think MTV did the same thing once it got popular, once it got to a, a, a position where it was taste, ma- you know, it was, it was a tastemaker, but once it got to a position of real power, they did the same thing that FM radio did, which was to silo off everything so that, you could you actually were doing sort of appointment viewing where you know um, instead you know you were when I was younger we were choosing the radio station that suited us whether it was top forty or classic rock or you know whatever you know by the time Jeremy was uh, of a certain age MTV had was a power real power broker and was segregating you know yo MTV raps from Headbangers Ball from 120 minutes yeah and- which leads into kind of what where I was going so. You know, looking at, at the videos sort of pre-kind of Nirvana, I'll say pre-Nirvana, pre-Biggie Smalls, kind of breaking down some of those those barriers, um, you know, you had people like BBD, Bell Biv DeVoe doing Poison, you had, you know, Van- Vanilla Ice, the MTV version of hip-hop, but you had to find kind of true hip-hop, Public Enemy and um, Daylaw and Jungle Brothers and all that stuff on, on UMTV raps. And then my favorite show, which kind of lean obviously towards my musical taste was 120 minutes which was at the you know wonderful time of sunday night midnight <laughs> till <laughs> till two in the morning and you know here i am sort of in, in uh you know eighth grade sneaking out of my bedroom to put on dave kendall and uh watch eight hours you know two hours not eight hours obviously 120 minutes our math skills come out again <laughs> yeah exactly but, <laughs> we've been we've been betrayed two hours of cocktail twins videos and uh you know um every bad British group that you can, Peter Murphy, to get to one great Husker Du video or one great uh, Pixies video. And, uh, you know, but it was like where I found music, you know, and some of it was awful. I did have a Ned's Atomic Dustbin tape at one point, (laughs) and some of it was great. You know, I discovered Ride and and, uh, and a lot of those other bands. And it was funny, we were talking about this earlier, when it was so record label driven back then that, you know, labels like SST or Sub Pop or, um, you know, Mad- early Matador, I mean, they didn't really push videos. And if they did, it was kind of this cynical, jokey video, which I thought was great and fun. But, you know, it was kind of like taking the piss out of... Yeah. yeah, taking the piss out of videos. But these, a lot of these sort of goth and kind of synth-heavy British groups um, were really being pushed because they were on major labels. So you would have, you know, and I, I mean, I'm a Cure fan, but, you know, it was just every Cure video you could think of and then every kind of awful band that bit off the Cure post that. And, and I, I mean, for years I watched that show to find music. It was amazing. Yeah, I mean, I think there's an interesting parallel also just, I mean, between um, the way that, you know, to get yourself on, on MTV in the early days, basically what you had to do was make videos, right? I mean, and there were obviously artists who were holdouts and who were who were basically rejecting the format. Um, I know when we've talked about it, like Tom Petty was one of those guys for a while, and then when he finally did come around to it, it was a total fucking disaster. Feet, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Alice in Wonderland or whatever, which is like the dumbest, you know, the, I, which uh, I can't even remember what the, what song that's a video Don't come for, around here but, no more, but it was actually, I think the only person that hates it more than you is him, so... Yes, no, that's that's uh, well, also- for, for good reason. But I mean, I think there's an interesting parallel there. Um, 
you know, to the artists who are the early adopters of, of the stream, you know, in, in my lifetime or in all of our lifetimes, obviously, but in the last, in the last several years. I mean, and I think you really do get an edge as an artist if you recognize that whatever tidal wave is coming isn't necessarily something that you should be swimming against. Mm-hmm. Um, and the smartest people to figure that stuff out tend to be enormously successful in that new format. And I just think about the guys who, like, who basically started, they, I mean, they recognized very quickly that, that um, to be prolific and to just crank out mixtape after mixtape, whether it's YG or Drake or whomever, and this is particularly prevalent in, you know, the the world of rap and hip-hop where you can remix your own songs and, and you know, get them right back out there means that you are keeping, like, you are just keeping your face out there on the front page of Spotify day in and day out. Um, but but we can get down, you know, we can talk to, we can talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Yeah, before we shift to streaming, and I think this is a good segue, I would say, and I kind of cut off my, my video obsession at 1990 because then Nirvana came, and Nirvana kind of you know, although it was music videos as well, sort of blew up kind of the sound that was prevalent. You still had a lot of baby boomer stuff going on in MTV in 1990. I looked up just kind of the hot, the hot videos. You still had, you know, Billy Joel, we didn't we didn't start the fire. Oof. And then you had leftovers from hair metal, like Poison, Unskinny Bob, which is, again, you know, up there with my, my love for Queensryche. But um, I think Nirvana came, kind of blew that up. And, you know, and then MTV sort of shifted from from videos into the sort of reality TV that we know now. Which is a perfect segue, actually, because I was going to start this by saying um, uh, my, you know, I I just wanted to mention my particular MTV experience, which was, um, you know, I started basically with Carson Daly's show TRL, and it was on after school for me, like fourth and fifth grade. Um, I, I would add that very embarrassingly, the only thing I've ever voted for on TV is uh, Juvenile's video for Back That Ass Up um, three weeks in a row every single day after school because I, th- I still think it's one of the best like rap songs I've ever heard. Did you get um, an I Voted sticker for that or no? I, I did not, um, but I definitely deserved one. Um, I kept it on that damn top ten, uh, along with millions of other Americans. Now, this was also like the total heyday of TRL, so it was like everybody came home from school and watched this, and it was like the best way. I mean, it kind of reminds me of like the Casey Kasem um, top forty thing you were talking about, except like the critical difference here is the fact that it was it was interactive. Um, and I guess that's a little bit more like the box or some of these other voting shows that you guys have talked about. Um, you know, it really did draw. The, the watcher or the viewer in now yeah the, there's the, only one or two long distance dedications per Casey's top 40 so there's okay uh, yeah I mean the the but I mean I think in the, in this case like the thing I noticed and and was very apparent to me was that you know when I started watching let's say fourth or fifth grade um they would actually show the full 10 videos over the course of the 90 minutes or two hours that the program ran. Um, and by the time I checked back in a few years later, uh, you know, they were basically down to showing 15 minute or excuse me, 15 second clips of these videos. And the rest of it was just totally like all of this sort of, uh, stunt live television show, you know, like they would be, they would be hosting bands and, uh, and, and, you know, with like side commentary and stuff like that. I mean, but it really wasn't like it was the a music hangout. had completely been drowned out of it. Yeah, exactly. It was, uh, it was sort of the last thing on their mind. Um, I mean, I think the, the real, I, you know, the revolution I'm here to speak about, um, is, uh, yeah, no, it really was. Back. Yeah, exactly. was, was basically the dawn of, of the internet and how that like completely affected the way I consume music from a pretty young age. I mean, um, the timeline basically just to provide a 
broad uh, overview for, for you two older gentlemen was um, that in the late 1990s, uh, MP3s were developed. Um, and, you know, that basically started sort of the feverish, like, bootlegging um, and, and uh, not quite file sharing, but it was definitely, you know, everything was getting burned. Um, CDs were getting uh, replicated and distributed, whatever. Um, then you have, like, the, the forums for it, so Napster, Kazaa, LimeWire. Napster was first, obviously. Um, wasn't that a Boston guy? Uh, Napster was, yeah. That was a, yeah. out of Northeastern University. Yeah, okay. Um, and those things just kind of grew astronomically. And, like, of course, the industry tried to fight back, whatever, litigate. Um, and then, you know, through the 2000s, basically, this battle sort of raged on between the industry that was trying to actually sell CDs um, and sort of pushing against um, and, and also scrambling, by the way, to find some kind of alternative that they could participate in because this was the real problem was they, they just hadn't thought this through ahead of time and, you know, they weren't necessarily prepared to deliver their CDs in MP3 format yet. So all of a sudden, um, you know, you have, uh, you have like the dawn of these sort of big MP3 libraries that you, that you can actually sell music on. So this is where Apple like got into the game. And I just, I mean, as we all know, totally dominated by, um, introducing the iPod and was that, iTunes. Yeah. Thereabouts. I don't know. Um, somewhere in the, somewhere in the, um, somewhere in the mid two thousands. Um, and, uh, you know, and they, they sort of took over and it, then it became, um, really a question of, uh, of, you know, you're still curating your own library, you're still loading CDs into it, and they sort of existed simultaneously in this gray area for about 10 years. And then I think, you know, the next really momentous shift came um, just about the time I graduated college with, uh, with these streaming services. Um, and, you know, I would just, like, so within those sort of three periods, the first being, um, you know, the development of the MP3, the second being sort of uh, it's, it's proliferation through all these libraries, um, you know, things like iTunes. And then the third being the streaming service. Um, you know, I, there are a couple of, a couple of personal anecdotes I would want to drop. The, the first is like that sort of 2004 to 2010 range. So you have your iPods, but CDs are still like a, a big part of, um, a big part of your, your, you know, musical identity. You can still curate your own library physically. And like, um, for me, that was really important. I mean, I, I would take, like I actually, so the the nerdy intellectual crowd as we thought we were anyway, um, which I think Wyndham you said earlier was uh, was what back in your day formerly known the, as the smoking section. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> um, like so that crew would like you know would eat lunch together. I just brought in a boombox and like my hundred and twenty eight CD wallet and basically you know took over like like corporate radio and shove music down their throats and said, this is what we're listening to. This is what sounds good. And, you know, it was a way, like, there was labor involved in that, right? Like, it was, you know, you had to bring the boombox. You had to bring the CDs. There was, like, physical ownership involved. You had and to then burn was, the CDs, right? Yeah, it was a pain in the ass. Um, and so you get cred for that. And this was all part of, like, building that identity. Um, and then the next part was, you know, in, around the same era, this, like, boarding school time. And this I remember just because it was the first time that I started pushing music back onto you guys. Um, which was, I would just, I would, I went away to school and I would come back and I would have done these huge hard drive swaps or whatever. Um, and then I could sort of dump music in your lap and say, this is what I've been listening to. Question. So what, what I'm curious about is, so Wyndham found interesting music via college radio. I found interesting music via Dave Kendall on 120 minutes. Uh, so where were you, I mean, so in terms of kind of putting it back in the context of, of like radio or, or, or 
how are you kind of seeking this music out? Like, how did it become? You know, those, the, uh, did the algorithms exist yet where they were like, if you like this, you're going to like this? Yeah. Oh, God, no. So this is where, and this is, this is what I was going to mention, is like the dawn of the music blog around the same time was equally important. And right. that was, I mean, if you think about it, what Pitchfork took off really in like 2004. No, actually, I mean, I was, I was reading Pitchfork as early as 98, 99, I think. 99. Yeah, but that's because you're six years cooler than the rest of America. <laughs> I think Pitchfork started in 2000. Um, but in any event, uh, they, when they, I mean, when it really took off and when it really started to spread and, and gain momentum, and by the way, you know, when they were able to, to finally corner a festival, um, it wasn't just that. It was also the Hype Machine, which was a source of mixtapes. Um, I mean, there were, there were a bunch of different formats, but it was like I could suddenly learn from other sources than you my girlfriend and the guy in the record store, mm-hmm. um, which quite literally were, well, that was like the triumvirate of places I got new music prior to that. So yeah, the, the guy in the um, record store is not to be underestimated in this conversation. I mean, that I think we've all had the guy in the record store who, yeah, you know, I mean, for me, it was Newbury comics for you. It was, uh, what was the place in DC? It was called Revolution Records, but I unfortunately literally lived through the era when that place closed because, you know, iTunes basically pushed it out of business. Because you killed it. (laughs) You and your friends. (laughs) Because me and all my stupid kid friends. (laughs) No, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, along those lines, you know, I used to, you know, I used to be the the sort of bet settler uh, when it came to, you know, I used to be able to, I used to think of myself as what we now, you know, have as Shazam, you know, where people would be like, who does, you know, this song? And I'd be like, uh, you know, uh, who, you know, Hamilton. Or like a song will come on the radio or something and somebody will be like, wait, I love this song. Who is this? Yeah. yeah. And so that was, you know, that was me and that I've been replaced. Uh, I feel You've like been the, made redundant. Yeah. You're like a <laughs> the John Henry of, of music, not the Red Sox owner, but the John, you know, the, 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 uh, steel driving John Henry, uh, where I've just been replaced and, and I'm looking back and I've, I'm realizing that, you know, I, I haven't fully grasped the internet, um, and all its power. I, I still feel like I'm, you know, taking a drink of water out of a fire hose cause it, I really have a hard time breaking it down. And, and this is how I rely really heavily on, on Christian now is, you know, it, I have, you know, it, I feel overwhelmed and I think a lot of people, um, my age too, even people who are really pretty current still, uh, feel pretty, you know, overwhelmed by the, uh, you know, the ability to have everything all at once. You wind up going back to what you've already heard. And so, you know, so Wyndham, are you, are you saying that you, uh, uh, uh mid to late forties, white male in America have been made redundant by technology and <laughs> computer wielding youths? Yeah. I mean, I do. I mean, I, your one skill of music suggestion is exactly co-opted by a machine to. in uh, China. No, it, it really, it really is sad though. It's, you know, I mean, it, I can, yeah. uh, I can try to beat Shazam, but, it, but it really, um, I, I mean, I'm talking about two different things. One is, you know, that you used to be re- relied upon to provide music, t- good music yeah. taste to other people. And I'm not just saying for you guys, I was that person among my friends, as was Christian, obviously, at the cool kid lunch table. Um, and, uh, uh, but, you know, now it's sort of, and I, I guess to my friends, I still am, but to, um, you know, as far as having any influencer, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's a strange thing. And, I, it, you know, this age, um, you know, it wasn't something I was relying on, on, you know, uh, having be a central character trait, you know, still really into cool music. But, um, 
it, it is a, it's a funny thing well, to, to have so much to choose from and not be able to choose, be overwhelmed so by that, choice. That's exactly, I mean, no, you, you hit the nail on the head and that's exactly where I was going to wrap this up and put the question back to you guys. I mean, I think, you know, part of this is just like the tyranny of choice, right? The fact that we are overwhelmed by all of these different options and, you know, the, the process of like cultivating and curating your own library of music doesn't quite exist the same way um, it used to. And I mean, basically owning music has been replaced by accessing music and that, that really does sort of like flip the script a little bit. Um, and I think on top of that, you know, I would add that like there are no communal listening places anymore. So you don't have, I mean, as, as we discussed, you don't have like that nerd oasis of the record store or my high school lunch table. Um, you have, uh, you know, you, you basically have, and this is where, I, I mean, I, I think you have live music as, as sort of the, the thing that sort of supplants that, right? Where if you are searching out, um, you know, the group of people who listen to the same stuff that you do, yeah, you can sort of convert them. But the other thing is, like, you go to the shows um, and you but actually that's get... Always, that's always existed, you know? That, yeah, that's always That been sense there. of community is... But it's the is last the one, refuge, then. Yeah. Oh, definitely, it is. But, I mean, I think people, you know, I hear people lament, and my business, I hear people lament the the... the you know, sort of uh, disappearance of the water cooler moment, you know, where everybody watched HBO on Sunday night and came in and talked about what The Sopranos was about. I mean, that wasn't that, I mean, Sopranos was a while back, but, you know, I mean, you know, we're talking over, just over the it's last couple of years since you've really been in, you know, um, cognizant of it. I mean, this is the first thing that sort of slipped out of your hands, I feel like, Christian, that, you know, that, the you know, other than sports, that, that, uh, large communal, you know, that sort of universal, not universal, yeah. uh, nation, the, the balkanization of, of like, of taste and, and, you know, people refer to it as the golden age of TV because everybody can have the very, uh, like, narrowly focused show that they are interested in. The same is true of music. You know, you have this massive fragmentation of the market because, look, everybody can listen to exactly the songs that were made for them rather than actually, you know, sort of any kind of, uh, you know, any kind of um, common denominator for, for people. But I think it's um, more so of like the, the good show, and bad. But I think it's more like the show Dump, the 10 episodes land on Thursday so that yeah. I may have watched yeah. nine of them by Thursday, but you might be on episode three. Like nobody's in the same place uh, you know, on the same at the same time anymore. We're not being, and again, well, we're not being held hostage by that either. We're not being, you know, you don't have to wait till next week to find out what happens to, you know, whoever was on Lost. But I um, do think there's still a lot of curating going on in the sense that it's it's there's so much out there. So you do have access to everything, which which I actually am really grateful for, having a, a significantly busier life than I did when I was twenty where I would just spend time at a record store or, or stay up all night watching a, an MTV show to find music. I can't do that anymore, but I can get a text from Christian or you with a link to a song and, you know, and then from Spotify or, or from the other streaming services and then turn other people on to that. And then I do think I got to say like as lazy as it is, and I'm not a huge Pandora fan, it's still not a bad thing. You know, you throw on for people that don't have time, I don't. I, I no disagree way, with you here. I, I think it's <laughs> two to one. You're out. <laughs> Nail in my heart. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, look, I, I'm not saying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't listen to it. I really don't. But I'm just saying, like, 
other it, the people. algorithms oh, get good. Yeah, no, no, no. You know? But you've heard about other. You have a friend who listens to it and he loves I, it. <laughs> I, I, I will swear by Spotify Discover Weekly. I, I, yeah. You know, they tap into it. I hear new stuff on that. I hear bad stuff, and I also, you know, hear stuff but, I haven't heard forever. But and I think to, that's great. Just to push back. I mean, again, like so. Uh, the the Spotify Discover system, whatever it is, is still just a series of like linkages. Some guy is going through and tagging all of these songs and artists with like maybe fifty different um, fifty different keywords that just that both describe the sound and describe the genre. Whatever those things then link together in this huge constellation, and a computer searches those things out for you. Which At the end of the day, it's only like yeah, all right, fine. But it's it's uh, we've already proven that I'm bad at math, so it clearly wasn't the nerd table. Um, um, but uh, no, I mean it's it's it, it's still it only runs a few layers deep, and at the end of the day, like organic listening recommendations are still going to break you out of those like root structures of different types of music and different genres better than anything else can. I agree a hundred percent, but the reality is, is we're three music nerds, so we're going to continue to do that. And now I think you have instant access to that music, which is great. You yeah. know what I mean? So we can talk about an album. I can put it on my phone as opposed to having to find it or, or you know, seek it out. So, so basically the conclusion is that we've gotten to a point, uh, full circle, where we three music nerds will sit here, berate the general public <laughs> for their taste in music and um, exactly. subdivide all of the different genres available it. to us. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, right. on that note, let's take a quick break and then uh, we'll come back uh, and have a, a quick final segment, including our, our, uh, our ending, which is always, what are you listening to? Sounds good.
to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Uh, tonight we are talking about radio. And Christian? Yeah, so uh, as with every one of our podcasts, we have a corresponding Spotify playlist. Um, you can find our playlist uh, through our handle at the Brother Pod on Spotify. Um, but also we'll, uh, we'll be tweeting out and uh, Instagramming um, uh, pieces of our playlists and uh, clues about our playlists and that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, definitely engage with us on social media at the Brother Pod. Great. And, um, you know, our final segment, as it always is, is uh, what are you listening to? So, Jeremy, what are you listening to? So uh, I've just spent uh, the last two days flying from uh, Boston to Denver back to uh, New York City, and what I'm listening to has been podcasts. So I listen to the uh, year-end Sound Opinions podcast, and Sound Opinions is a um, Chicago podcast. It's a podcast that I think's you know a great music podcast, and they do a mixtape at the end of the year. So they actually kind of tell the story of the, the year in music through a mixtape. It's a great podcast that I highly recommend. And uh, that's what I was listening to on my long flight from Denver. And as always, uh, what are you listening to is a segment that, that includes, it's a catch-all for what are you listening to, what are you reading, what are you watching, what are you, you know, recommending or not recommending. So, Christian, what are you listening to? So, two things. One, I'll just mention up front that I finally did see uh, Manchester by the Sea, which you mentioned in this segment a couple of weeks ago. Um, that is some depressing shit. Thank you very much, Wyndham. I appreciate that in the dead of winter. Um, uh, but otherwise, yeah, no, it was a beautifully, uh, beautifully made flick. You're absolutely right. I recommend everybody see it, um, particularly if they don't have uh, kids or, or uh, experiences with house fires. Um, but, uh, but otherwise, I'm, I've been reading uh, Fortress of Solitude, um, by, uh, by Jonathan Lethem and absolutely love it. I mean, this guy, he just, I realize how late I am to this, um, to this particular party, but, um, you know, it's, it's this sort of wonderful coming of age story, um, set in, uh, set in downtown Brooklyn or actually literally set, um, where the Barclays Center is now. Uh, and, uh, so it's a wonderful sort of, um, description of, of, you know, the social and, socioeconomic sort of tapestry of, of the place where I now live, but also, um, but, but in addition to that, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's extraordinarily, um, uh, articulately, uh, described, um, but also just a great story about a kid who, who, you know, grows up, um, on the block, uh, with, you know, a, a pretty multiracial childhood and sort of how that evolves through his teens as he goes to a, to a local magnet school, et cetera. Um, but I definitely recommend everybody put that on their list for 2017 if they haven't read it already. I love that book. Absolutely. Yeah, one it. of my favorites. So, um, I have been, I actually, uh, I don't think I've mentioned this as a recommendation, so I'm going to take the liberty to do it again. I saw this last month and actually rewatched it this uh, past weekend, and that is Soundbreaking, uh, which is now on Hulu. It's a PBS-BBC joint uh, production documentary on, it's an eight, eight one-hour um, part uh, documentary series on the history of music production and produced by uh, George Martin. It's one of the last things um, he did. And it is phenomenal in its detail. It is incredibly well produced. Um, it, obviously, there was a lot of time, effort, money put into this because it, it just, uh, you know, I can't recommend it enough. It, it covers, uh, you know, the early stuff, uh, basically modern recording. And if you think about modern recording, um, it really does start uh, almost with you know with rock and roll. I mean, you're talking about Les Paul and Mary Ford, but uh, 
you know, from that moment forward, your uh, you know, modern production really, you know, jumps off with the Beatles and Phil Spector and and um, you know the bands that you equate with with modern recording. It gets you know further in and uh, detail, but it it's remarkable and it's rewatchable within a month. So uh, even if you're not a complete music nerd. Uh, I highly recommend it. It's just a great, great TV show. So anyway, I think that'll do it. Um, yeah. Thanks, you guys. Let's, uh, we'll talk soon. Sounds good. All right. Sounds real. good. Right, Catch you later. That's it for today's episode of the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And drop us a line at brotherpod.com. Thanks very much to Damien Kendall for producing. And from Wyndham, Jeremy, and Christian, see you next time.